Hello, welcome to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt, the author of the fantasy novel, Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, which I will read in its entirety, one or two chapters per episode on this podcast. This episode will cover chapters 30 and 31. We'll close out the second act of the novel by catching up with George and Justan to find out if their signal to the Ancient Ones worked. And then we'll begin act three, with Marzell and the Priests of Selenderon for the operation they've waited 25 years to launch. If you're joining us for the first time, you're going to want to go back and listen to episode one and listen all the way through in order. We'll be here waiting for you when you're caught up, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us on this journey. If you would like to read ahead and support my creative endeavors, please consider buying Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair as an ebook, paperback, or hardcover wherever books are sold. Or you can read it on Kindle Unlimited if you subscribe to that. Signed copies are available on my website, ryanhoytauthor.com. I'm excited to announce that the sequel novel to The Forest of Despair is completed and off to the editor this month. I will release The Isle of Abandonment in the summer of 2023, so look out for an announcement on how you can pre-order that book very soon. Let's get into the episode and read chapters 30 and 31 of Gemma Calvertson and The Forest of Despair. Keep in mind I'm narrating the book for the podcast, but this is not as clean as a professional paid audiobook. I hope you'll still enjoy the story. Please stay tuned after the chapter for a behind-the-scenes look. And thank you so much for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair Book 1 of the Epistel Chronicles by Ryan Hoyt Chapter 30 they waited for help to arrive, but it didn't come. George wasn't sure how long Justan intended to wait, and he also didn't have faith that the light of the tower's hearth could reach more than a few miles in any direction, no matter how big the flames or how high the tower. Justan kept reassuring George that the magic of the Ancient Ones allowed the flame to be much more visible than logic could explain. For several days they waited, George grew anxious and irritable. Justan, on the other hand, seemed calm and patient. He spent his days exploring the rooms on each level of the tower, shuffling through wardrobes and chests, trying on lush robes that had been left behind by previous inhabitants, admiring the fine details on all of the abandoned, antiquated furniture. He particularly enjoyed spending time in the armory on the second floor, George had to admit that the metalwork on the swords was beyond even his own skills. He wasn't in the business of making weaponry, nor had his mentor been, but he knew all about the art of smithing, and he had never seen anything that could compare to these swords, shields, and suits of armor. On one rainy afternoon, George decided he had wasted enough time lying awake in bed. He wandered down from the fourth floor where he had taken up residence. As he came down the stairs just beyond the third floor, he could hear Justan talking. They've come at last, George thought. He ran down the rest of the stairs to the ground floor, expecting to see the Ancient Ones in full military attire, ready to take on their enemies and rescue Gemma. Instead, what George walked in on was Justan, wearing pieces of a much too small suit of armor from the armory, swinging a sword around in mid-air, making battle sounds, and talking to unseen companions. Um, Justan, George said. Justan quickly turned, lowered the sword in his right hand, and swallowed down his embarrassment. What are you doing? 
I heard you talking and thought someone had arrived. Oh, hey, George, Justan said. Just practicing for the next run of my show. You know, doing some reenactments of the great journey and such. A lot of great props here. Right. Well, carry on, I suppose. George turned and started to walk back up the stairs. After two steps, he stopped and turned back. No, you know what? Don't carry on. We shouldn't be sitting here this long. I came to you in a time of need, and that time is not over. But all we're doing is waiting. For days. We can't act like help is going to just show up, because it's not. Your friend Mayakel and all of his ancient ones left this country behind years ago, and they are not coming back. Georgie, please, have faith in them. I know it's been longer than we expected, but they will come. They will. George waved him off, went back up to his room, and slammed his door, the way he used to when he was a teenager and Gemma was a kid who loved to make a mess of his room. By that night, George was at his wit's end. He didn't join Justan for dinner or a chat with him at the campfire they normally started outside the tower in the evenings. He stayed in his room until the sun went down, then walked to the armory, grabbed one of the fancy swords and a shirt of mail, and headed outside. Justan was out checking the hunting traps they had set, which had been left in the tower by the ancient ones who had once lived there. George began making his way down the side of the mountain. He was only a few minutes into his descent before he realized how stupid he was being. It was difficult enough to make the climb up the mountain in the daylight, yet there he was, not bothering to act sensibly. Gemma could be captured, even dead, he thought. I can't keep waiting around, and Justan apparently has no intention of conceding that the Ancient Ones are not coming back to help us. And then he slipped. George lost his balance as he tried to lower himself down onto a ledge that was covered in unexpectedly loose gravel. As he fell, he tried to grab onto the ledge he had slipped on, but he couldn't get a good grip. He fell 15 feet and landed hard on another ledge that fortunately protruded farther. The wind was knocked out of him for several seconds, and then he tried moving his hands, his arms, his feet, his legs, his neck, Blessedly, nothing appeared to be broken. Oh, he groaned. He tried to yell, but the air hadn't yet filled his lungs enough. He stayed there for another minute or so, not moving. Finally, he drew a deep breath and yelled, Justan, help me. He tried a few more times. It was dark now, and he didn't know if he was going to be able to find a safe place to climb back up the side of the cliff. And then... The rain came. A short time later, he heard Justan. George, where are you? Justan, I fell off a ledge. Help me. A minute later, he felt pebbles falling down on him. Either he was about to get crushed by a rock slide, or Justan was above him. Fortunately, it was the latter. You down there, buddy? Justan yelled. It's a bit wet and dark. I don't know if this is the best idea you've had. George couldn't help but laugh at the ridiculous situation he had gotten himself into, and at Justan's humor, which never seemed to fade. Just had to get away from you, you big dumb oaf, George yelled out in jest, and Justan roared with laughter from above. Hang tight, I saw some ropes in the lower storage room. It was another half an hour of rain and mud on the cliffside before Justan was able to rappel down the side and find George. They were slow and cautious, climbing back to the top, 
But George was relieved once they made it back up to the tower, out of the rain. You didn't learn to climb from all those kittens of yours? Justan quipped. I'm sorry, Justan. Thank you for risking your neck to save me. I just can't sit here and wait while my sister might be dying out there. I get it, man. I do. No need to explain. Tomorrow morning, we'll gather up all the supplies we can use, and then we're gone. That is, if you're able to walk. Justan burst into laughter again, and George joined him. True to his word, Justan was up at sunrise the next morning to select weapons, mail, and barely edible dry foods for the journey. They found some durable yet portable bedding and warm coats in case of more inclement weather. Justan grabbed as much rope as the two of them could carry and some metal spikes for scaling the steep sides of the mountain. After eating what they thought could be their last good breakfast in quite some time, they headed out. You know, I've found an easier way down the mountain, Justan said. I'm sure falling all the way down would be fast and all, but you're going to want to be able to walk after you get there. You didn't, George said with a look of disbelief. Did you? Justan led George a few hundred feet east along the ledge and pointed it out. You did? I did. To George's surprise, there was a narrow staircase carved into the cliff's edge. It blended right in, but sure enough, it was there. I'll take the lead as long as you promise not to fall on me from behind and take us both out, Justan said, slapping George hard on the shoulder. For all that is holy, please take the lead and I promise I will not fall again. I don't think my bones will be so lucky if I take another spill like that. It took hours and there were some difficult portions where they had to use their ropes and spikes, but they made it to the bottom by late that afternoon. George nearly collapsed with a mix of exhaustion and overwhelming relief. After a breather in the shade of a tree, they resumed their journey. The Amasa River was just a quarter mile south, and from there they would head east for as many days as it took. They were miles away from the tower on the mountaintop when they set up their camp that night. As he set out his bedding, George looked to the west and tried to identify their home from the last several nights. He found himself pleasantly surprised when he spotted it. The fire was still burning, perfectly visible from where he lay. It filled him with hope. Part 3. Transcendence Chapter 31 It was in a filthy, damp alleyway, not far from King Davin's castle, that Marzell gave a woman hope. He didn't have the luxury of stalking her for several days to know which route she took on her way to work early in the mornings, just as the sun was starting to peek out from the east. He didn't ask her co-workers questions about her routine, as if they knew anything about this woman who labored hard, then went home to labor even more over her perpetually ill husband. Marzell didn't need to do any of that. The Lord Selenderon was on his side. Selenderon would give him wisdom. He set out the night before. He knew he wouldn't be able to sleep anyway, not given what was planned for the day that followed. So he walked, speaking in a low voice, praising his Lord, pleading for wisdom, foresight, strength, and honor. Selenderon gave him all he needed, and he would give himself for Selenderon. In one particularly rough neighborhood, two men walked up to him from either side, tall, yet not as tall as him, and bearded, though their mustaches were not as impressive as his own. 
A man in a fancy little suit comes walking down our street. He must be ready to pay the price. The one with long hair said, The price is money or blood. The one with no hair said, Money or blood, which will it be, fancy man? Marzell took a step to the side so he could see both of them at once. He knew better than to leave both sides undefended. He did it with a smoothness and confidence that threw off both men. The hairy one shot a glance at the bald one. Then they both turned their gazes to Marzell. You heard my friend, hairy one said. Which will it be? Gentlemen, have you ever heard of Solenderon? Marzell asked. There was not a hint of fear in his voice. The great and merciful Lord, the creator of the ever-giving sun, the bringer of light and creator of life. Have you heard of him? The follically challenged man's eyes narrowed in confusion. He took a step closer to Marzell. What do you want about, fancy man? Gentlemen, you seek meaning in your lives clearly. You seek it through intimidation, through roughness, through altercations, through your adorable companionship. You clearly care deeply for one another. But there is a deeper meaning to life that can only be found through understanding of the true power, the true love, the true reality that is Solenderon. Marzell held up both of his hands, palms facing his intimidators. As you can see, there is nothing in my hands, and yet there is something beyond the vision of man, something divine. In that moment, as the two men stared at Marzell's hands in confusion, a brilliant light flashed. It lit up not only the street where they stood, but the darkest corners of the sleeping neighborhood, shining through the blacked-out windows of the shuttered stores and apartments. It shone most directly into the eyes of the two men. They screamed in shock and pain. They both bent down quickly, slammed heads, and then fell to the ground. Marzell's hands faded back to their normal, pasty white, and he stepped over the men and continued on his way. An hour before sunrise, he stepped into an alleyway between a branch of the Royal Bank of Epistel and a Southern Reaches food importer. There was no sign that indicated this was the place. There were no telltale footprints to give him a clue. The Lord Solenderon put it in his heart and in his mind, and he was sure of it. He stood in the alley and waited. Nearly an hour later, he heard footsteps. Though the sky had changed from deep purple to hazy pink and orange, it was still quite dim between the buildings. The woman didn't notice him until she was halfway down the alley. When she finally did see Marzell only a few feet from her, she jumped and let out a brief cry. Please, Miss Calvertson, he said. Please be calm. How do you know my name? she asked. I know your children, or I know of them, I should say. I know what they are doing right now. Serena Calvertson looked at Marzell untrustingly. In the dim but incrementally brightening morning light, she didn't see any hint of threat or malice on his face. She relaxed her posture a little bit, and Marzell knew that the Lord Slenderon was at play. Ever faithful, the Lord was. I know that your son went off without warning. He is safe, though, for now. He set out to find your daughter. She has faced unimaginable challenges in the last several days, but she has come out of them stronger. She is a new woman. 
no longer a fearful girl, but a brave woman, a hero even. How could you know this? Who are you? I am Marzel of South Plains. I am a priest of the Order of Selenderon. My Lord has led me here to you. He has great plans for Gemma and George. Their names will be celebrated for generations to come. I wanted to bring you this good news as encouragement, even though I cannot say any more about it. He took in her speechless, open-mouthed stare, and he was proud of himself. He decided he would take it just one step further. I know you do important work serving King Davin and the royal family and advisors in the castle. Please, I must warn you about today. If the castle is under duress, you need to get to safety. We will let you and the other servants leave unharmed. You can keep everyone calm and lead them out. It is King Davin we are coming for. You cannot be telling me that friends of my children will be attacking my king, can you? Serena was beyond confused, and that was when Marzel realized he had made a mistake. Uh, please, for the mission of your children to be completed, you must do as I say. Remain calm, and you will be unharmed. Do not say anything about this, lest your children be endangered. He reached out a hand and laid it on her shoulder. The Lord of Selendron wills this day to be as it is. All will be made right. The path has already been set, and your children will be heroes. They will restore Epistel to its former glory. They will save us all, as he wills it. As he wills it, Serena said. Her gaze looked distant. Her speech was slow. There was a thrumming from Marzel's hand as it rested on her shoulder, which did the trick. Yes, as he wills it. Yes. She started to walk back the way she had come in a dazed stupor. Wrong way, Mrs. Calverson. I do wish I could send you home instead, but we don't want any suspicion from King Davin or any of his companions. But you will remain safe, and you will be the mother of heroes. Wrong way. Mother. Heroes. Serena corrected her course and continued on her way to work. She would snap out of the trance by the time she arrived, and she wouldn't remember what had occurred. She would only be filled with a strong sense of hope. Marzel was proud of himself, at least until he returned to Horace's home, where he and his co-conspirators were preparing to make their move to overthrow King Davin, until he told his companions about what he had done. You careless, no-good fool! Horus was livid. All of the priests of Selendron were livid, but Horus was the most vocal about it. You may have jeopardized all of us, all of the planning we've done since the downfall of our order, all because you are a careless, no-good fool. Please, Horus, calm down, Bertram interjected. We must collect ourselves. Now, Marzell said that Mrs. Calvertson walked away from their encounter filled with a sense of hope and pride for her children. Would she really give that up in support of the tyrant, King Davin? As I said, she was filled with relief when we parted ways, Marzell promised. She will not betray us. I am confident of that. I just felt I had to let her know that she need not panic when we begin our operation. And I truly believe I did as the Lord willed. 
He led me right to her this morning. That was no happenstance. We better hope so, Horace growled. Now, we have work to do. Let us begin our mission. Everyone grab a lantern and follow me. Horace led them down into the cellar. This wasn't a damp, dirty, dark root cellar, but rather a lower floor of the luxurious home that Horace had procured with his family's old money through no hard work of his own. There were spare chairs and tables and fine serving dishes for the fancy galas Horace threw for his wealthy capital city companions. They passed all of these and went into another room beyond. Here, Horace opened a closet door. In the back of the closet, he revealed a false rear wall. It opened on unseen hinges, and behind it, another staircase led even lower under the house. Down the stairs they went, into the darkness and dampness reserved for spiders and other creeping, crawling things. At the bottom of the stairs, they turned to find a series of wardrobes. Horace opened the nearest one and pulled out a white frock with an elaborately stitched sun. The ever-giving sun, the symbol of their faith. It has been two decades since we have adorned ourselves in the robes of our order, Horace said. As the scriptures tell of our Lord, in the deepest cavern he awoke, he arose, he adorned himself in light, and out from the darkness he revealed himself and made all men bow down to him. So too shall we, the last surviving priests of the Order of Solenderon, rise up from the darkness and make King Davin bow down before us. We will restore freedom to all the oppressed people of Epistel. We have lived our lives for this moment, friends. We will be victorious, as the Lord Solenderon foretold. Our Lord wills it. The old men and women in the room began to cheer, to weep, to embrace each other. Then they donned the holy robes that had long been forbidden in Epistel. They ascended from the cellar, ready to fulfill their mission. As they walked through Capital City in their robes, they drew the attention of a few people, then dozens, and then hundreds. By the time they arrived at the gates of King Davin's castle, they had a massive crowd of witnesses made up of common city folk who assumed this odd collection of elderly people were about to get arrested, or worse. They had broken the decrees of the Royal Mystic Committee and King Davin, which banned the wearing of religious garb, public congregation for worship, proselytizing, and practicing of mysticism, magic, or prayer. The 17 remaining holy men and women of the Solenderon faith spaced themselves out as evenly as they could around the walls that encircled King Davin's castle. The walls were 30 feet tall, with even larger towers every block or so. The castle complex was at the center of the city and was several blocks wide on every side, so even with 17 people, Marzell and his companions could barely see one another. It would be difficult to know if one of them had been arrested or killed by the guards, so they would have to keep going with faith that their invisible bond would not be broken. As the crowd looked on, Bertram held out a mallet and a bell. He started to ring the bell, and they began to pray in unison after the fifth chime. The words spoken by the seventeen were not in the common tongue of Epistel, but rather an ancient language kept alive throughout the centuries by the followers of Solenderon. 
even in the days of religious freedom, it had been fully understood only by the priests of Selenderon, and it had been almost fully snuffed out by the religious purge over the last two decades. Holiest Lord Selenderon, crafter of these lands, true founder of Epistel, bringer of light, creator of life and of the ever giving sun, highest is your name. Your lowly servants stand here today in your honor to enact your will. Here we restore the faith of the people in your divine name. Here we present ourselves as a sacrifice to you by bringing an end to the evil rule of the oppressive King Davin, who seeks to drive us into darkness to extinguish our flame. We call on you, Lord, to deliver us to victory. We call on you, Lord, to push down these walls, to bring us into the inner courtyards of this palace of evil. We are your loyal hands and feet, Lord. The prayers continued in that strange tongue. The castle guards stood on the wall overlooking the oddly dressed elderly men and women who raised their hands and spoke in what sounded like gibberish. The guards turned to look at each other, unsure what to do. The ground shook. Being near the west coast of Epistel, Capital City had its fair share of shakes from the shifting tectonic plates under the western sea, but the guards could tell immediately that this was something different. With horror on their faces, they looked back down at the priests of Selenderon. A commander of the guards began to yell orders for the bowmen to fire at will, but before he could finish the command, the walls impossibly crumbled. The commander and his men did not live to see what happened next. Even as the outer walls fell, Marzell and his companions continued their prayers. Their confidence grew after this first display of power, and Marzell found himself nearly yelling the words. In the corner of his vision, he saw the crowds beginning to swell, but despite their numbers, they stood in stunned silence, taking in the strange words being uttered by the strange people wearing strange white robes emblazoned with golden suns. Marzell and the other priests walked forward. They climbed over the mounds of stone debris and entered the inner courtyard of the castle grounds. To Marzell's amazement and delight, the common folk of Capital City followed them. This was the first time many of them had stepped foot into the center of power, despite having lived their entire lives close to the castle. This was also the first time in 25 years that these onlookers had seen a public display of not just the Selenderon faith, but of any religion. If he could have stood any taller with pride, Marzell would have. They continued their prayers to their Lord Selenderon. They spoke the words over and over, now calling for the entire castle to come crumbling down. As they spoke, a figure appeared, high on a balcony of the castle's central tower. Even from below, in the shadow of the structure, Marzell knew who it was. King Davin stood on high, looking down at the swift destruction of his castle's defenses. Marzell, Horace, Bertram, and the other priests began to yell their prayers to ensure that they were heard by their enemy above. The king stood there, scowling down at them. Marzell turned his attention to the inner gates of the castle. He expected guards to come pouring out, but none came. 
Surely there must be a small army in there that could defeat us, he thought. It was then that he found himself forgetting the words to his prayers. The chain of unity among the seventeen was now broken. He tried as best he could to catch up to the other's words, but he struggled to maintain focus. Far to his right, he saw Bertram glancing over to him, knowing that something was wrong with Marzell. Then Marzell noticed a man walking up behind Bertram. Quickly, Marzell shot a glance to his left, where the priestess Shanisa stood. A man was walking up behind her as well. Marzell whirled around, knowing he would find someone approaching him, too. It was a large man dressed in what looked to be common townsfolk garb, but he was carrying one of the gold daggers decorated with rubies that the Royal Mystic Committee's enforcers were known to use. He saw his fellow priests on either side of him fall, their throats cut open by their unseen attackers. The man in front of Marzell lowered his dagger, sheathed it, and tackled Marzell to the ground. As he fell, Marzell thought for a split second that he saw Mrs. Calvertson up on the balcony above, stepping out next to King Davin and the king's personal guards, pointing down to identify Marzell. I have been betrayed, he thought. I have failed, my lord. Our rebellion has come to an end. Marzell's head slammed against the cobblestones, and the last thing he saw before he fell into unconsciousness was an explosion of light against the darkness of his eyelids. All right, that was chapters 30 and 31 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair by me, Ryan Hoyt. I enjoyed further exploring the dynamics between Justan and George in chapter 30. They are two very different people who happen to be working toward the same goal, so they're forced to put up with each other. I wish I could have gone on longer about Justan role-playing his old adventures with the weapons that he found in the tower, thinking that nobody would walk in on him. He doesn't get embarrassed too easily, though. And then George, leaving in anger and not remembering that he's not an outdoorsman, and certainly not a climber, finding himself stranded on the edge of a cliff. He's forced to swallow his pride and call for Justan's help just minutes after walking out in a huff. By the end of that chapter, Justan and George are on their way to Emerson, the same direction Gemma and her companions set off for when we last saw them. And that's it for Act 2. If the start of Act 3 is representative of what's to come for everyone, Marzell did not set us off on the right foot. First, he couldn't even help himself but get into a little tussle. Then he potentially gave up elements of surprise by telling Gemma's mom about what was planned at the castle where she works. The other priests were rightfully mad at him for that one. Finally, the priests and priestesses of Selenderon screwed up in their attack on Davin and his castle. To me, they basically just look like terrorists, especially if most of the people witnessing their attacks are just fine with the status quo, and these creeps come in to mess things up and attempt to kill their faithful leader. Did they really even think this through? They had 25 years, come on. Uh, and then they were ambushed by the Royal Mystic Committee who followed them dressed in the garb of just regular commoners. So was that it for Marzell? What was the point of his storyline if so? You'll have to keep listening to find out. If you want to know sooner, you can buy the book everywhere books are sold, including signed copies at ryanhoytauthor.com, or you can read it on Kindle Unlimited. Connect with me on social media, which you can find links to at ryanhoytauthor.com. The music in this podcast is from Before the World Moved On. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. We'll continue our journey together through the forest of despair on the next episode. Take care of each other until then. Thanks. Thanks.